And much of history revolves around who has been in control, doesn't it? When you, when you study world history, much of it revolves around who has been in control. Um, many times when you study history, it's organized by empires and, and, and who's in charge. And I don't know if you realize just how big empires were and how much they ruled our world and how much they even still influence the world that we live in today. For instance, at one time, the Russian Empire covered 15% of the Earth's landmass, and it lasted for almost 200 years, ending in 1917 with the Russian Revolution and the rise of Marxism. But at one point, 15% of the Earth was under, of the landmass was under, was under the Russian Empire. During the days of Columbus and, and the founding of our country, the Spanish Empire ruled the world. It was one of the first global empires, and it still affects the way that our world operates today. The second most spoken language in the world is what? Spanish. Spanish. The largest ever empire was what? British. British, British Empire. At one time, it covered 22% of the Earth's landmass, and in 1938, it held 20% of the Earth's population. In fact, it was said that the sun never sets on the British Empire. When you consider that, that, that they control large portions of Africa, India, Australia, Canada, the sun never set on the British Empire. And so those of us who live in the West, it's easy to begin thinking that power and control resides in men and governments and political groups and maybe the wealthy. Do you ever catch yourself getting irritated with those who hold the power? Be honest with me. Come on. Somebody in this room has gotten irritated with those who hold the power. It's just part of who we are as people. But our text today absolutely flies in the face of this kind of thinking. It absolutely just flies in the face of this thinking that somebody is in charge. And it gives us perspective. And I think it's a healthy perspective for us. And as we're going through the Psalms this summer, I, I had to pick this one because I think, you know, not just on a national, big world level, but on a personal level, I think we need to get a right view of who our God is. And I think we need to be troubled by this view of God. Sometimes it's good to be scared of something, isn't it? And I would submit to you that, that we need more of a healthy view of God and a fear of God in, in for ourselves. And this text does that. And, and I don't know what you're facing or what you have faced. I know some of you have just gotten back from vacation. Some of you are getting ready to go on that last minute vacation. Some of you are heading back to school. Some of you are facing some really difficult times in your life right now. And I don't care where it is that you're at. The one thing, the one constant is that we have this awesome big God and that he reigns over all. And, and that, that really needs to be our focus. That needs to be our focus. And so this morning, this psalm begins with this powerful, irrefutable statement. Say it with me, the first three words of Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Say it with me again. The Lord reigns. This is not up for debate. This is a statement of fact, and it's irrefutable. Whether or not you and I see it, whether or not we acknowledge it, whether or not we want, to, we want to submit to that, we begin this morning right here with this fact. Jehovah God, the Almighty One, reigns over all. 
And so follow along as I read through Psalm 97 as we unpack the implications of that big statement. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlines be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. And God, that is our desire this morning, that we who can be counted as the saints in this passage, as those who are righteous, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus, that, that when we leave here this morning, that we would truly have joy in our hearts because you reign over all, that we truly would be thankful that we would get a fresh new vision of who you are, God, a, a better understanding of your power this morning, and that it would absolutely transform the way that we see the world around us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I've been trying to teach us as we've been going through Psalms that, that Psalms are a worship manual. And, and just like we got to use the hymn book this morning, some hymn books are written in sections. There are certain sections that focus on certain themes. Well, this book of worship, this hymn book, is no different. In fact, Psalm 97 lies right in the heart of a little small subsection of Scripture that, that is helpful for us as we contemplate this this morning. Specifically, Psalm 93 through Psalm 100. Go back a page or two in your Bible, and, and, and let's just consider some things here. Because Psalm 93 through Psalm 100 deal specifically with Jehovah God's rule over his earth. Okay? They deal specifically what that means for you and I, what that means for the inhabitants of earth, what that means for the earth itself. Look, Psalm 93.1, what's the first statement? The Lord reigns. You go to, to Psalm 94 in verse 2, it, it calls God the judge of this earth. Psalm 95, in verse 3, we get this great statement, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. We see the supremacy of our God there mentioned. Psalm 96, in verse 4, tells us that he's great and greatly to be praised. Psalm 98, verse 9 says this, before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Psalm 99 in verse 1, the Lord reigns. Psalm 100, this, this psalm that's very well known, making a joyful noise, we find in verse 3, know that the Lord, He is God. And so we have this, this section of psalms that take up eight, eight songs here, and Psalm 97 falls right in the middle of this. And so as we contemplate this God who rules over all, what is the psalmist here trying to write to us, and what is he trying to bring to us so that we might better worship this God? Well, he starts 
with this, as I said, this irrefutable statement in verse 1. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. Now, we've sung a song in our church before entitled, Our God Reigns. We talk about God reigning over all. And, and yet, I think at times when the nitty-gritty of life hits us and we're in the middle of it, it's easy for us to forget that God's in charge. Anybody else there? That, that when things are going on around us and, and we witness what's going on in the world, and maybe it's not even just in the world, when we witness what's even happening in our own lives, when, when we're seeing health calamities and we're seeing scares and, and, and relationships aren't what they're supposed to be and, and our job's in jeopardy and we don't like the people we work for, am I, am I depressing you yet? <laughs> it's easy to think that God's not in charge, isn't it? It's really easy to fall into that kind of thinking. And yet the psalmist begins with this big, bold statement, the Lord reigns. What, is, what does that mean, that, that he reigns? It means, number one, that he's sovereign over all. He's sovereign over all. We don't live under a monarchy. In fact, we, our history is rooted in the fact that we threw off the monarchy. The monarchy was too much of a monarch for us. And, and we threw off a monarchy, but, but, but a monarch is sovereign over all. Whatever the monarch says, whatever the king says is the law. Whatever, and whatever he says is going to be policy, it's policy. And that's the kind of statement that the psalmist is making here. He's sovereign over all. That means that his purposes will be accomplished and that they will never be thwarted. Remind yourself of that this morning, friend. God's purposes, the purposes that he clearly gives to us in his word, they will be accomplished. Do you realize that, that, that God is, there's nothing that happens on this earth that God hasn't first said will happen? Do you understand that? He's sovereign. If he, either he's sovereign over all or he's sovereign over nothing. You, you can't have it one way or the other. He, he must be sovereign over all. And so his purposes will be accomplished. He rules over the nations. He rules over movements. He rules over alliances. He rules over individuals. Whether or not they will even acknowledge it. God rules over all. And when we say that God rules over individuals, I'm talking to a room full of individuals this morning. Whether or not you want to believe it, you admit to it, whether you acknowledge it, God rules over your life. His ruling power is never in question or left to chance. We see that a lot in the world that we live in today, rulers that make really bad decisions, don't we? People who are in charge who make really bad decisions. That can never be said of this God because this God can never be held in question, and, and he never leaves anything to chance. In fact, he rules over presidents. He rules over dictators. He rules over governments. He rules over evil. He rules over sickness and disease, and he rules over you. Whether or not you and I want to see that he's fully in control, he's in control. That idea is what's summed up in the three words that begin this psalm, that the Lord reigns. 
There are things in your life right now, there are things that are happening in the world right now that would seem to indicate to us because we look at it from just our perspective, like somebody is, needs to establish some control here. Things are way out of control. Rest in this this morning, child of God. God's got this. He's completely in control. He's completely in control. He not only is sovereign, but he's actively reigning right now. He's actively reigning right now. And whether or not we see the results of that, he is doing it. And what is the response that the psalmist wants us to, to, to grasp onto? What is the response that he's given to us here at the end of verse 1? Let the earth rejoice. I see a lot of emotion in our world today, but I don't see a lot of joy. And the reason that we don't see joy in the world today is because most of our world will not acknowledge the fact that Almighty God rules over it. You see, when you can come to grips with the fact that Almighty God rules over this world and rules over your life and that He is going to always be actively working for your good and for His glory, you can get joy in that. You can get joy in that. And so the psalmist says, when you come to grips with the fact that the Lord reigns, then the earth will rejoice and the coastlines will be glad. But unfortunately, unregenerate man is so blinded and in opposition to his rule that, that the response is not joy here. The response is unbelief and it's stubborn denial and it's rebellion. And we're seeing it play out in a major way in the world that we live in today. And so because we see that and because the psalmist knows that, he gives us a picture of this powerful God. And this morning, I just want us to take a few minutes and contemplate just how powerful our God is. And he uses great poetic and picturesque language. Beginning in verse two, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Keep your finger here and go back with me even further back into the Old Testament, to Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, we get this picture of God. How many of you ever heard people say, you know, the Old Testament view of God, you know? This, and, and, and I want to say to you, the same Old Testament God is the same God today. Okay, and so this view of God that we're going to see here way back in the Old Testament, early in Israel's history in Exodus 19, is the same God who sits on his throne today. But in Exodus chapter 19, we get this fearsome view of God. The people of, of Israel are, are now on, on the outside of Egypt. They have now been, they've now been delivered from Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land. And it's very early in the process. And they've come to Mount Sinai. Think back to the movie Ten Commandments and that, the cheesy graphics and everything in the movie Ten Commandments, Right? And, 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 and this is where they're at. They're at the base of the mountain, of Mount Sinai. And this is the view of God that they're getting. At, and, and, and keep in mind, this is not a view of God that they got in Egypt. Okay? This is a view of God that they're not used to. And just put yourself in their shoes. In, in Exodus 19, in verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud, uh, and a loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Pretty fearsome view of God, isn't it? 
God's literally shaking this mountain. And Moses brings them out, and, 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 and it's, as it's recorded for us here, he, Moses brings them out to meet God. This, this is not a warm, fuzzy God. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And, the, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And so... As the psalmist writes here in Psalm 97, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. The, the, the Jewish reader of this and the, the hearer of this, the one who would, who would be singing this song, he would go back in, in Israel's history and he would be thinking of this God that's portrayed in Exodus chapter 19. It's God's presence should evoke fear. I don't think very many of us are afraid here this morning. But, but if, we, if this room filled with smoke and it started shaking and, and you felt like the walls were coming down, would you might be just a little afraid? Would you might be just a smidge afraid? He's the same God. He's the same God. In Matthew 24, we have a picture. In fact, let me just read it for you. In Matthew 24, this picture of, of a future reference to God that Jesus gives to us. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29, where he says this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This idea of shaking and thunder and lightning, it evokes fear. But most of us are trained to think that those who are in power are corrupt, because mostly those in power are what? Right? This is a righteous and a just power. This is not an angry tyrant shaking a mountain just because he wants people just to be afraid of him. This is an all-powerful God who is always doing things justly and rightly all the time. This is not an abused power. And when you and I or anyone else approaches this powerful God, here's the one thing. When you approach him, just like the Israelites approached him at the Mount Sinai, they were met with justice and righteousness. They weren't met with some underhanded power fiend. And so this picture of God, yes, is fearsome, but notice it's righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. I dare say that in all the capitals of all the nations of the, of the world today, you will not find very much righteousness and justice. But you will find it at the throne of God every time. And so, as the psalmist builds this picture of God, the first thing he wants us to see is that he is <laughs> clouded with thick darkness. And, and, and righteousness and justice are his foundation. Then in verse 3, he says, fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. And what he's saying there in verses 3 through 5 is something that you and I need to understand. Nothing is going to stand in the way of what God is going to accomplish. 
Nothing is going to stand in the way of what God's going to accomplish. Verse 3 is a prophetic reference to a time when all in opposition to him will be burned up. Can you imagine that? that? That all who are in opposition to an almighty holy God will one day just be totally quenched by fire. With a holy fire. And he goes on in verse 4 to talk about lightnings lighting up the world and the earth sees and trembles. We've had some awesome lightning this week. It's really been quite, actually, quite annoying at night. Because my dog doesn't like it. Okay? I like it, she doesn't. But they are awesome displays of his, of his power. And it got me to thinking, and I think sometimes we need to just look at the scriptures, but we need to understand a little bit of science, not the way our country defines science, but real science. And we need to understand, researchers estimate that one thundercloud carries one billion volts of electricity. Let me help you to understand what one billion volts of electricity is. Your outlet in your house carries 110 volts. How many of you have ever been bitten by an outlet before? It's not comfortable, is it? Imagine that times 9 million and that's one thundercloud carries that much power. Now think of that and go with me to Revelation chapter 4. You'll find lots of lightning in the scripture. And in Revelation chapter 4, we have this view of the throne of God, and it is just a majestic view. In fact, I just want you to see this view of the throne. Verse 1, after this I looked, and behold, this is John writing, a door standing open in heaven, and the, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take, take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. When you and I see a rainbow, we only see one part of it. Do you realize that? We only see the bow. We only see one end and the other end, right? When you were a kid, you were trained that there was a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow, and you never found it, did you? Right? Actually, the way light works and the way bows work is, it is actually a full 360-degree thing. And, and, and what, he, what we have here is, is this picture of heaven in this throne and the Almighty sitting on this throne, and he is literally surrounded by this green light. Do you see it there? Like an emerald. Emeralds are what, women? Green. And there is this green rainbow around him. In verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. The one thing that captures John's attention about this throne is all this lightning and thunder that, and this rainbow around it. And this is where God dwells. This is where he sits. This is where he rules from. We could go on, but go back to Psalm 97. 
How powerful is this God? He, he, he's, he's surrounded by clouds and thick darkness. Fire goes before him. Lightnings light up the world. In verse 5, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The crust of our earth is mostly igneous rock. At this point, all the science haters are like, I'm going to sleep. The crust of our earth is mostly igneous rock. To melt igneous rock requires a heat of 1,200 degrees Celsius. Give you some perspective. That's hot. 1,200 degrees Celsius to melt igneous rock. That's 2,192 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay? I, I, I know you've been to some hot places, but you've never been to any place that hot. To give some perspective, way out in a faraway place is the Wolf Rayet star. The temperature of that star is 210,000 degrees Kelvin. Some of you are like, I remember Kelvin from chemistry class and I didn't like him. No, Kelvin is actually a way you measure temperature, okay? Kelvin, and you factor that over, 210,000 degrees Kelvin is actually 377,540 degrees Fahrenheit. I think our God is capable of melting the mountains, do you think? If he can create a star that's 377,000 degrees Fahrenheit, I think this star-creating God is more than able to melt the mountains like wax. And so when we read in the book of Revelation that the earth will be destroyed by fire, that, that's, that's, not just, that's not just word picture, that's reality. God's going to do that. And so we have this all-powerful God, and, and, and the scripture here, and the writer here is recording, nothing is going to get in his way. And in fact, verse 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. And let's understand something. Even the most pagan, unregenerate, rebellious person on this earth cannot deny that there is a glorious God who's responsible for what's going on out here. Psalm 19, the heavens declare his glory. And so, this God who reigns, and all the people who see this, now, what, what's, the, what's, what's the response to this? Well, <laughs> well, the response to this is this, verse 7, that there are still people who worship images and those who boast in worthless gods. And before we take a look outside the walls of this church and point to all the people in the world who are godless and worshiping false images, you and I are just as guilty at times. We're just as guilty as times. We have the word of God that tells us how glorious this God is. But, but you and I, we, we sometimes we fall down and we worship at the idol of prestige or, or acceptance with people or... Or we, worship, or we worship at the God of wealth. Or we worship at the God of, uh, you know, I want to be popular. What does the psalmist say it is? It's empty. It's worthless. And it's shameful. You see it there in verse 7? All worshipers of image are put to shame. When you think about it, here is this all-powerful God that we see in Revelation chapter 4 that the psalmist is drawing our attention to here in Psalm 97, and, and we know he's there. Intellectually, do you not know he's there, church? You know he's there, right? And yet, I find myself at times worshiping a very cheap substitute. 
And one of the cheapest substitutes that I worship is the God of self. Anybody else guilty of doing that? I'm just going to worship myself here. What the word says is, you're going to be put to shame. These are worthless idols. They're empty. They're, they're, they're going to bring you nothing but emptiness. And, and the, he makes a plea here. Worship him, all you gods. Worship him. You see, our attempts to gratify our idols and ourselves are ludicrous when we consider the power and majesty of this all-powerful one. And that's what we sometimes live our life doing, trying, trying to do this. We try to gratify our idols and we try to gratify ourselves. We will do anything to make our idols like us more. I'll work double shifts for the next month just so I can build my bank account. I'll do this. I'll, I will do something to gratify my idol. And what we find is this. That in the end, it's just emptiness and nothing, do we not? But he gives us a look into the future now. In verses seven and, or excuse me, eight and nine. And he talks specifically to Israel because this psalm was directed to Israel first before it's directed to us. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted over all the gods. And what he is pointing to is to a time when Jesus will literally rule and reign on this earth. When, when God in the flesh will come and rule and reign. And, and what will happen is there will be gladness. There will be rejoicing because God will be judging. And, and let's understand something. If there will be gladness in the future at the reign of God, then those who willingly submit to him now should have joy and gladness. Because verse 9 clearly says, Jehovah God is far superior to all the things of this world, the things that you and I get tempted to submit to. And, and, and I'm the first to admit with you, and I'm the first to agree with you, some of those things that we're pulled to submit to, it's a pretty powerful pull, isn't it? It's a pretty powerful pull. And that's why we need this huge view of God and who He is, because I want to tell you, His center of gravity is much bigger than any center of gravity on this earth that wants to pull our attention. The things we worship don't compare at all to this all-powerful God. They all pale in comparison. Then he gets personal in verses 10 through 12. It gets really personal here. And, and, and I call this, this section of the psalm, uh, this is the joyful position of those who are lovingly submitted to the reign of God. You see, because there's two kinds of people in the world, those who are joyfully submitted to his rule and reign and those who are in rebellion, right? That's basically, there's two kinds of people in the world, those who are submitted to his rule and reign and those who are in rebellion. And so he says this in verse 10, oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Until you truly submit to him and his rule and reign in your life, you can't hate evil because you love evil. You understand that, don't you? 
One of the greatest joys of, of knowing Christ as Savior and, and being able to follow him and being a follower of Jesus is that we have now the ability to hate evil. We don't have to love evil anymore. We can resist its temptations. We can resist its pleasures because we see them for what they are. They're really small and puny compared to the greatness of our God. And I would submit to you, because I know this to be true in my own life, one of the reasons we battle with sin so much is this, because we don't really see God for who he is. If we really saw God for how big he is, and how worthy he is, and how holy he is, and how powerful he is, and how righteous he is, we would not dabble with some of the sin that we dabble with. We would resist and hate evil much stronger if we had a better view, a Psalm 97 view of God. Here's what God does, though. And I love this. Because, because the first part of this psalm where he talks about the fire and the lightning and mountains melting like wax, that's, that's pretty fearsome. Notice what he says in verse 10. He preserves the lives of his saints. He preserves the lives of his saints. There is nothing better in the scripture than the promise that he preserves the lives of his saints. You see, God preserves and delivers, he goes on to say, those who love him. This psalm, all of scripture points to a time when, when one day, and, 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 and I want you to understand this, there is coming a day when all the evil in this world will be adjudicated properly. Amen. It doesn't get adjudicated properly right now. I mean, let's be honest. What's happening in Afghanistan right now is a travesty of justice, is it not? Rest easy, follower of God. One day it's going to all be adjudicated properly. It's all going to be taken care of. It's all going to get sorted out. And what we know from the record of Scripture is this. Evil will be punished. It will be punished by this fire, by this holiness of God. But we also know this, that the righteous, the saints, will be preserved. What a hopeful promise. What a hopeful promise. For those, for those believers that we heard about in Nigeria last week, for those in Afghanistan right now who are facing this, here's the thing. Yeah, they may lose their physical life, but they're going to be preserved. And I don't say that flippantly. That may be us one day. That may be us one day. But then he points them to a time in the future which we're beginning to see a part of even now in verse 11. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. And this is a specific promise and he's pointing to a time that, that Isaiah writes about in Isaiah chapter 60 where, where there will be the rule of Christ here on this earth as I mentioned before and it will be a time of light and joy. But here's the thing. In the New Testament, in 1 John chapter 1, we have this really cool verse in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have what? Do you remember? We have fellowship with him. We have fellowship with him. 
There's a benefit to, to being in the light here. And light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. There is a benefit even now in this life. Yes, you might be going to have the worst week ever in this coming week. You may have all this adversity. Maybe you're just coming off of a time of adversity. But the one thing that you have if you are the child of God, you have fellowship with Christ. And there's great benefit in that. Because you have fellowship with the all-powerful God. And what does that produce? Well, verse 12, what does it produce? It produces something that the world can't offer. Joy. You see it there? Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Because God reigns, and those who are lovingly submitted to his reign in their life, we can have joy. Even when your world is in chaos, even when your life is totally topsy-turvy and you can't tell the top from the bottom and you just feel like you, every time you get your head above the wave, somebody's coming and knocking you down. It's the worst feeling, isn't it? Because God's in charge and he reigns, you can have joy in that. And because you have joy, joy always, when it's, when it's truly in your heart, gets expressed the same way every time. Do you see it there at the end of the verse? Joy is always expressed in what? Gratitude. Thanks. It's always expressed that way. That's the way it works. God produces this joy, and it's not a joy that's produced by the circumstances, but, but, but when you realize that the all-powerful one is ruling over all, and he's ruling over your life, and even though things are chaotic, you have joy, and you can be thankful that he's in charge. This is what I found to be true in my own life. Maybe you found this to be true in your own life. I'm rarely thankful when I think I'm in charge. True? Right? When I'm in charge, when I'm in control, and I'm really thankful about that because it usually doesn't end well. Right? And here's putting a bow on this this morning. I know you're surprised. It's nowhere near noon, and I'm ready to wrap up. I know I owe you for the last couple weeks, okay? I can be fair and honest, too. But as the world seems to be more out of control, I'm absolutely convinced that we who are his saints absolutely must have a Psalm 97 view of God. As things get crazier and crazier, we gotta have a Psalm 97 view of God. You don't need a social media view of God, you know, the one with the pretty pictures and Bible verses and... No, you need a Psalm 97 view of God. You need a Psalm 97 view of God. Because that's the accurate view of who God is. God's not, God's not some weep, wimpy, weak, feel-good, kind of here to just make you... I mean, he, he's not the same God that Oprah wants you to think he is. We need an accurate biblical view of who God is, and it only comes from his word. And, and, and the one thing that I am coming to grips with as, as I work through every one of these psalms that I preach to you is this. We desperately need the word of God more and more and more in our lives. 
And the one thing that the Psalms do is that they point us not only to the picture of who God is, but they point us directly into his word. But I would say to you this morning, if you're here and you're not submitted to this God, you ought to be afraid. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Because because your destiny is right up there in in verses 3 through (laughs) 5. You will be the one who's burned up with, with, as his adversary. You, you'll, you'll face the wrath of his lightning. You'll, you'll, you'll be in fear of the earth trembling. You'll be the ones who are melted like wax. But if you are the child of God, let me just say this. Psalm 97 is important because a small view of God will lead you to live in fear. You know that? And, 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 and let's face it, the world around us wants us to live in fear. Do they not? I mean, they want us to be afraid of every little thing. I mean, they want us to get it to the point that if they come up behind us and go boo, that we'll jump like out of the room. And a small view of God leads to fearful living. Here's why. If you don't have the right view of God, then you don't have any confidence in his power. If you think he's small, then you think he's very puny and weak. And when you think God is puny and weak, then you have reason to fear everything. But the reality of Scripture is our God is big, he's awesome, and he's powerful. He's all-powerful. And you have nothing to fear if you're his child. Another reason you need a Psalm 97 view of God is this. When we see God as small, we try to step in and play the part of God. We're already prone that way anyway. But, but when we see God as small, when we, don't think he really, when we really don't think he's in control, this is what our natural inclination is. Well, God, obviously you don't care about this situation. I'll just handle this, okay? Has that ever worked out for you before? And then thirdly, and probably most importantly is, and most dangerous, is when you and I have a small view of God, we'll go worship something else. Something else that's more attractive, something else that's more appealing, something else that meets us on a you know, felt need kind of level. Friend, can I give you a suggestion this week? Read this section of Psalms this week, Psalm 93 through Psalm 100, and get, 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 a, get a true Psalms picture of who God is, this big God, and tell me if it doesn't transform the way you see your God. Oh God, I thank you that you are a God who reigns. Because if it's, if it's some power or some man in control, we are in really bad shape. We're in a desperate place. But God, you are the all-powerful one and you, you are in control. And so I pray for myself, I pray for these whom I love, that you would increase our view of you. Forgive us for a small view of who you are. It's because of our laziness, it's because of our apathy, it's because we don't pick up the word like we should. And so forgive us for that. But Lord, I pray that you would deliver us from fearful living, that you would deliver us from trying to control our lives, and that you would forgive us and deliver us from 
worshiping anything else that's not you because you alone are worthy. We thank you for being this all-powerful, awesome God who loves us, who sent Christ to die for us so that we could have relationship with you, so that we could be, as verse 10 of this psalm says, preserved. We thank you for your preservation. May it bring joy to our lives, we ask. Lord, as we say goodbye to our friends Scott and Melanie, we pray your blessing on them. We count on this fact to be true, that although we may not see them again on this earth, we will one day be able to spend eternity together with them, and we take great joy in that. We ask your blessing on them. We ask that you would help them in their move to Arizona and may it all go smoothly. And we ask, God, that you would use them in a mighty way there. Thank you for loving us and meeting with us today. In Christ's name, amen.